Peter and Zach are not experts, and everything they say should be taken with at least one grain of salt. Please keep your ears engaged throughout the whole podcast to prevent rampant confusion. Now, brace your mind for impact. Hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of Friends and Theory. Well, not not really, because it's just me again. Uh, Zach is away doing important things of his life. Um, not that this isn't important, but uh, I'm going to get out of this hold right now before I continue to dig any deeper. No, unfortunately, um, Zach can't be here this week, and it's totally understandable. So here I am with some quickfire news for you in a show that I am... Now calling friends and theory junior. It's um, <laughs> it's it's a work in progress. So anyway, let's jump straight into it. So what have we got? We have got some news from Tesla. This is um the new Tesla Model Three has been revealed. It's going to be around thirty five thousand dollars, which is a significant big 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 drop in price. Um, and this is definitely Tesla's first attempt at a mass market for their cars. People are still on the waiting list, however, for Tesla cars. But this one is apparently going to be very good. They um, took a lot of feedback from the last model. And so they've given this model a bigger trunk. And they've made it a lot more aerodynamic. And it looks a bit cooler as well. It's in um, black rather than the traditional white. But I imagine that's something you get to pick as a customer. So yeah, we could be seeing uh, a lot of cars around very soon. I mean, um, $35,000 isn't too ridiculous for the car of the future. Uh, and now, uh, staying sort of on point <laughs> with Elon Musk and, uh, you know, he does, um, SpaceX and what's SpaceX? It's, it's a space business. And do you know what else is the space business? Moon Express, a company I'd never really heard of until I started doing the research for this week's episode. So this is a company founded in 2010 and they have raised over $45 million for free expeditions to the moon. The final of which will be to mine moon rocks and launch a capsule with those rocks back to Earth while staying on the moon to mine it. Um, that's basically the whole story. I just did that all in one. Well done, me. Uh, <laughs> if you think I did a good job, please comment, well done, Peter, great story, uh, somewhere where I can see it. So this final mission will be known as Harvest Moon, uh, very appropriate. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's pretty cool. Um, I mean, to be honest, the idea of us just firing moon rocks back to Earth seems... A bit concerning. Um, there's also a lot of grey area about who owns space. Um, there's it, it, a lot, lot to consider here, really. Um, also, what happens if we mine enough rocks and send them all back to Earth? Will gravity on Earth increase and make everyone's life just a little bit more difficult? Uh, probably not. So, while we're in space, and in particular while we're in our solar system, two astronomers from the Complutense University of Madrid have used a technique but is um, supposedly less exposed to observational bias, to look into a potential Planet Nine, which was um, proposed in 2014. And no, not Pluto. Get out of here, Pluto. Um, is it Pluto? I've got to check now. I think it's Pluto. Pluto was the smallest planet, and um, it got kicked out. So yeah, um, a Planet Nine has been proposed since 2014, but a lot of the research done into it has either not been very accurate or has uh, been suggested to use a technique that is prone to a lot of 
observational bias. So you're going to have to bear with me on this because I had to do a lot of um, research and learning for myself to figure out what exactly was going on here. So this study was looking at 28 extreme trans-Neptunian objects, which are objects in the solar system beyond Neptune, 100, at least 150 astronomical units, uh, one astronomical unit being the distance between the Sun and the Earth, and they never cross Neptune's orbit. And so what they're looking at are nodes. And a node for an extreme trans-Neptunian object is the crossing point between the orbit of the object and the solar system plane. And this is the point where if there is another planet in our solar system, that's when we'll be able to see it most likely interact with that object. So assuming that these objects interact like the comics are... Com comics? like the comets around Jupiter, um, they are interacting with a potential planet between 300 and 400 astronomical units away. Uh, so there you go. Who knows? Maybe there's a planet nine, maybe there isn't. There is some more research suggesting that there is indeed a planet nine, but it's hiding. It's very far away. Moving on. If you've ever had a broken heart, um, I haven't because I don't have one, so I'm safe. But um, if you've had one before... Or maybe you've actually uh, suffered from a cardiovascular disease or have had heart failure. Then this is the story for you. Um, so Nicholas Kors, a doctoral student from ETH Zurich, a sort of um, medical technology material science place, has been developing a sort of very realistic artificial silicone heart. So the problem we have with current blood pumps is that they tend to have a lot of mechanical complications. And also there is no pulse and a sort of physiological effect of that on the patient is unknown, but it also means like checking on blood pressure is kind of difficult. So what this, what he's aiming to do is to recreate the heart from silicone, obviously, with the same size, similar function and form, and it's been pretty much successful. The only problem is it lasts for like 3,000 beats, which is 45 minutes, pretty much. Um, so yeah, not ideal. But it is, it is really interesting, and obviously as the technology and materials improve, we'll probably see something cooler. So what, we're what I'm going to do now is just uh, stop doing science news to briefly um, talk about uh, a Friends and Theory book review, or fat book reviews, um, because I, I've, I went on a trip to London uh, last weekend, and a friend of mine recommended a book to me, and I picked it up. It's called Bad Science by Ben Aldick. Ben, Ben Doldacre. <laughs> Jesus, I can't talk today. It's called Bad Science. It's by Ben Goldacre. Um, and a lot of people have probably already heard of it. I haven't because I'm an illiterate degenerate and reading is for nerds. Um, but it's, it's a very good book. It's very fun. It's looking into a lot of pseudoscience and the way in which practices such as homeopathy and, um, you know, acupuncture dietary fads all not only contribute to uh just sort of lying to people and making science a bit harder to understand but also sort of degradate the value of good science and when we get into those sort of debates with people about stuff we're not often just you know like i i wouldn't be opposed i'm not opposed to homeopathy in practice, what I am opposed is the bad science being justified to sell it as a valid sort of medical treatment. And it's sort of looking into all those fallacies, the debate surrounding it, 
I mean, I really enjoy it because it's basically just 100% agrees of everything that I already know. But of course, it is exploring new areas that I haven't really considered before. And so even if you are a man of science, a lady of science, um, a non-gender binary person <laughs> of science, if you're into science at all, uh, and if you if you hate science, but you have guts, I recommend this book uh very much um unless of course you hate uh cynical snarky people uh which you might because uh, it does come across as a little bit like that but it's very well written i'm enjoying it i think it's great i think it's very interesting it's backed up by examples and um it's really funny as well because you you, de- you definitely get the impression that he's just a fed up scientist and that comes across in really really fun ways such as setting up home experiments which you should definitely not do to test uh, bullshit claims, basically. Right, so, that's a book review. I, I haven't finished reading it yet, but it's pretty good. Um, moving on, we're going straight back into the news section of this podcast, because that's what we're about, really. Um, but when Zach's away, I will make a slightly worse podcast. So, here's some good news, um, for all you crocodile fans out there. The Cuban crocodile is a critically endangered species, obviously from Cuba, and one of the biggest problems it has is that it crossbreeds of the American crocodile, which is doing okay. Um, but the Cuban crocodile, this means that it becomes genetically less pure, and therefore its definition is as, as, as well, defining characteristics and genetic traits that make it a species are being eroded. So a combined effort from Cuban conservationalists and the World Conservation Society have bred 10 genetically pure Cuban crocodiles from a breeding facility and they've released them into the Zapata Swamp in Cuba. So this is really good and exciting. And um, all news that basically is talking about getting more animals from a species that's endangered and getting it back into the wild and living healthily and normally is really, really good. So I'm I'm glad. Uh, there we go. Good news. More crocodiles. Uh, <laughs> next up, um, an interesting one. So in short... There is a desire in the scientific community, well, by some parties and members, to turn living cells into memory storage houses, like your computer hard drive a bit, or maybe like the brain, Um, but in particular, using DNA as an encoding system. Now, this is an idea that has been toyed around before. I don't have any examples to hand because that's the kind of high quality podcast we are, but in short, a low-quality GIF has been encoded, read, and played from DNA as part of this effort. Um, and it's the classic, um, I think it's um, the sort of first moving image, you know, the, the spinny circle thing with the man on the horse and you spin it and it looks like he's moving. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm really sorry. And if you do, then, well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but you can probably find this uh, image uh, just by doing a quick little search. Um, obviously I can't show it to you through this podcast. Um, if I could, I would. Um, so this was done by a whole plethora of people and was funded mainly by the National Institute of Mental Health. And the recording system was, of course, CRISPR because it has the ability to do it in real time and it's very accurate. There you go. So, um, in the future, who knows, maybe we'll be using living cells, the superior version of storage to, uh, well, what we currently use. (sighs) Another lonely day on the beat, and it's raining, of course. 
It had to rain. My partner's away on business, and so it's up to me to solve the mystery of AI but learn how to walk. Um, this is um, uh, AI Watch uh, Junior, I guess. Um, so Google, with their DeepMind company, they've made an AI that has taught itself how to walk. Um, and I'm sure questions are already popping up already. But in short, um, it was given sort of sort of um, models. Models, you have obstacles and a model that has a capacity of walking, say like a solid body and limbs. And some of them are human-like, some of them are not human-like. And so the AI was basically given free instructions, um, well, free bits of information, and then just had to figure out the rest by itself. So it was given information about its own orientation, it was given information about the objects around it, and then it just had to get from point A to B. And I highly recommend looking this up because it's kind of funny, it's also really interesting, um, because it just kind of looks like a bizarre 3D animation. But that is allegedly the AI sort of teaching itself how to walk, um, which is, is really, really fascinating and, again, kind of funny. Um, should we be concerned? Maybe. But then why would we be putting an AI in a body that has legs if it wasn't going to use them anyway, sort of thing? Uh, <laughs> so there you go. If um, if you thought you were safe putting an AI inside, I don't know, your doll, watch out. Because um, it will learn how to walk and run and jump. Um, so yeah, there's that. Finally, for our final story, I've got something for things I never considered. And today's question that I never considered is, um, let's say let's say you're on a swing. You're well, let's say you're hanging from like a rope or something. You're like you're like holding onto a rope. Maybe you're like swinging around or something. And you do the thing where you sort of you spin around a lot in one direction and then you let go and then you spin back in the other direction as all the energy is released. So how come spiders never spin? Hmm? How come um, uh, spiders on their uh, on their, their web strings never spin, huh? Hmm? You ever think about that? You never just see a spider spinning out massively? Of course you don't, because they know what they're doing. And also, this is another fascinating property of spider silk. So, a team of Chinese and UK researchers have published a paper in Applied Physics Letters stating that spider silk partially yields when twisted, so that the energy is dissipated throughout the silk, rather than uh, causing the spider to spin out. Now this is, um, again, really interesting, because it's things I never considered. Um, the spiders have really got it all figured out, huh? Uh, <laughs> and um, obviously, the properties of spider silk that let it do this um, will be applied to other sort of biomechanical areas and be researched. So hopefully we'll um we'll maybe get some rope that doesn't doesn't spin. So I I think that wraps it wraps it about up um from this week's episode of Friends and Theories Light um point five beta version. Uh so in short, learn how to walk, uh buy an electric car, um <laughs> read a book. And um, don't worry about not having a heart, because they can fix that now. Goodbye! Big bad Betty of the Pocalypse She opens her lips and it goes like this